Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. I can't start today's episode without a huge thank you. If you listened to our last episode, I spoke openly and shared my own story of living with bipolar disorder and mental illness and hiding it for 24 years. I was afraid and scared and almost pulled the trigger many times on the interview. But I decided to share it in the hopes of playing a small part in ending the stigma around mental illness. My fear in sharing has always been that I would somehow be rejected. And what happened was the exact opposite. The emails, the posts, the text, the phone calls, and all of it completely rooting me on and dozens and dozens of people sharing their own stories. One of our wise guests said that everything great is on the other side of fear. Standing here today, I could not agree with that anymore. Because of you, my friends and listeners, I shockingly feel great about sharing. I feel a sense of lightness and most importantly, immense gratitude to each and every one of you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, on to today's episode with the incredible Kevin Briggs. Kevin served in the U.S. military, survived cancer. Shortly after, he became a prison guard at San Quentin, including working on death row with inmate Charles Manson. He went on to be an officer and sergeant for the California Highway Patrol and was assigned to patrol the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge is a beautiful and iconic landmark but it has a dark past of countless suicide jumps. With no suicide prevention training at all whatsoever, Kevin Briggs saved over 200 lives in his 23 years on the bridge. He is a true hero in every sense of the word. And today he shares his greatest lesson, the art of listening. Here's today's interview with Sergeant Kevin Briggs. Kevin, thank you and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So first of all, how would you describe or introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, I was with the California Highway Patrol, and that's probably what we're going to be discussing today. Um, And I was a negotiator with them. I worked on the Golden Gate Bridge for many, many years, talking with folks who were contemplating suicide. And now I travel and present on mental health and uh, interventions, suicide prevention, negotiations, 
Tell me a little bit about your childhood and how that shaped the person you became as an adult. Well, I had a very good childhood, actually, upper middle income. My father had a printing business in San Francisco, and we live in Marin, which is just across that Golden Gate Bridge. So um, it was very, very good. I had a lot of friends, and I had one brother and two sisters. We didn't really have anything particularly negative happened in our family until 1989 when my mother developed cancer and passed away. She had lung cancer, and of course, that's a huge hit to a family. And how old were you at that time? I believe I was 27. When your mom passed? Yes. And I know you eventually started a career. Well, first of all, I'm sorry for the loss of of your mother. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm sorry. So eventually you started a career in the military. Can you share that experience with me and what it means to be active in the U.S. military? Yes, I was actually 18 years old, right out of high school. Two months after I graduated, I went into the military and I was in the uh, Airborne Infantry, stationed up in Fort Lewis, Washington for a year. And then I went over to Germany and I was supposed to be there a couple of years uh, and, and really had a great time. It was tough. The infantry's tough. There's no joke about it. But I learned a lot uh, and I learned a lot about other people. And uh, unfortunately, I developed cancer when I was in the military at age 20, testicular cancer. And this occurred while I was in Germany. So I had my first operation there. And then they sent me back to San Francisco to Letterman Army Medical Center, where I had uh, two other surgeries and several months of chemotherapy. So what I thought was going to be you know, a wonderful career in the military, whether I was going to continue on with that and possibly become an officer at some point. Um, came to a halt rather quickly. So how did the experience of both your mom having and losing her life to cancer and you being diagnosed and living with cancer, how would you say that those shaped or defined you? Well, when you're young, you think nothing can hurt you. Um, And I have a boy that's 18 and 16 now, and I can see it in them. You think everything's going to be great. You can't get hurt. You're kind of indestructible. But seeing my mom go through that, and she was just 49 years old when she passed, and then myself going through this with the operations and the chemotherapy, you it really hits you, and you do realize, wow, you know, life is frail, and it can be taken from you pretty quick. So it, it tends to want to make you become better yourself. And what can you do to help others? What can I do to help myself to be a better person? So it, it taught me a lot. Professionally, you went to San Quentin, which is iconic and a sense of place I think most people are fascinated by in a sense. What was your job there, if you can explain what that job entailed? Sure. When I worked at San Quentin, I actually started out at Soledad State Prison. San Quentin is very, very old, and it's the, the walls there are extremely thick. And when the metal doors slam, they really slam with authority. There's no doubt about it. You are in prison. And we would bring folks in there to show them, you know, just people who have not been in any trouble. They want to come in and they want to see what the prison's like. And everybody comes in smiling. But I have never saw an individual leave that was smiling, you know, as they exited the place. It's dramatic. 
uh, it's San Quentin State Prison. There's no games there. It's the only place in California where they have the where they execute the inmates, um, even though we have not done that in quite some time. So it's it's a scary place. It really is. There was officers that were we call it getting shanked, stuck by objects, um, and I think a lot of it had to do with ego. They're they're targeted folks. So I try to treat folks with respect. I think that was a really big deal. So it was a very a trying time for me. I learned a hell of a lot about myself and other people. But I think the three years I spent in corrections, it's very, very good. I enjoyed the job, and I think I learned a tremendous about, amount. What were the types of crimes that landed somebody in San Quentin? To go to San Quentin is everything from murder all the way down to theft to, to drug sales. At a time you were assigned to the area where Charles Manson was held, correct? Yes, I was. My guess is our listeners will be intrigued by this. What was your experience interacting with Charles Manson? He is, or I say was, a character. I was with what we call on vacation relief, where I worked with another officer, and we would take inmates from one place in the prison to another, and we would escort them. So we were charged with getting an inmate that was the cell next to Charles Manson in a security housing unit. But Charles Manson saw me, started speaking with me. Um, he was quite the guy. He really was. He would talk about car sales and and talk about his lawyers, how he would be out here if he didn't have the, the crappy lawyer he did. And, and everybody knows me at the front gate. Just walk me up there and we can walk through here. And he just kept going on and on and on and hitting all these different subjects. And then it was time for us to go. We had the guy that we were looking for out of the cell. And as we're leaving, Charlie goes, hey. And I turn around and look. And he says something to the effect of, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to cut your head off. But that's the devil talking. And your mama wouldn't want you listening to the devil. Said, wow. Okay. And we left him and, and we went on our way. But a, a very fascinating individual as he could go from one topic to another, to another, to another, and not even blink an eye. Yes, from car sales to I will chop your head off. <laughs> Just a, a whole gamut of things, yes. Yes, wide, wide array. Um, I would have walked off as well. What are some of the saddest or hardest things that you witnessed in prison? I would say for me, it's, it's the humanity. Um, the gangs there. And what they do to one another, and then if an officer treats an inmate bad, you know, that person runs the risk of retaliation. So much there is based on how you look instead of how you think. And everything is, is all about race. So you're going to have the white folks in one area, the African-Americans in another, the Hispanics in another, and then it's also divided all into the gangs. So you really see life as just these little segments of people that do not want to get along or talk to another for the most part at all. And, and that's a shame. Are there things on the opposite end that you witnessed things that were hopeful or human, surprising to what people would expect you would experience in a place like San Quentin? Uh, many of the things, because we have to look at letters that are written out and, and letters that come in and listen to the phone calls. We monitor everything. But the humanity and the love 
than an image and the pictures that they would be that would um, draw those types of things to say, you know, I cannot wait to get out of here. I love you so much and very, very caring for their family and a lot of their friends. But when they were out and in person and in the open, they really had to put on a front to have this macho look. But on the deep on the inside, you could tell a lot of these folks were very loving and giving. How did your experience at San Quentin change you as a person? I think it really made me take a look at, at myself on the inside and see, well, what do I want to become? Because I can see what happens if you go down a wrong path. But what about the other side of that, about helping people and struggling to not only become better myself, but what can I do to help other folks? So that's what made me take a look at. And you would find yourself helping in the community, I think, in a unexpected way. Um, certainly being a part of the CHP is, is helping, but for you, it led to this um, really extraordinary path. And I was thinking about the juxtaposition of this next professional move for you, because you're moving from San Quentin to the California Highway Patrol, where a big part of your job was patrolling the Golden Gate Bridge. And the juxtaposition of these two iconic places, just miles apart, and one is darkness and murders. Um, as you said, people leave there speechless. And the other is this beautiful bridge and they're just sitting over the same bay. So I, I think visually your, your transition professionally, um, I don't know, really stuck out to me. You're now known as the Golden Gate Guardian. Talk to me about initially coming to the CHP and about the bridge and, and what it means and stands for and ultimately why you think it became a place of so many suicides. I started working in the East Bay over by Oakland, California, in Hayward. A lot of nice folks, but a lot of gangs and violence. And I spent four years there and I learned a hell of a lot. But then I was able to get back to Marin and Marin connects to San Francisco via that Golden Gate Bridge. And not so many officers really wanted to work on the Golden Gate Bridge, and I didn't understand why. But when I started working down there, uh, I understood it. One, it gets very, very cold all the time. Even the summer is the worst, I think. But you know, we had this suicide problem. People would go there contemplating suicide, and I would average four to six cases a month of this. Uh, and I had no idea this occurred. And I grew up in Marin. We crossed the bridge all the time. How many people have ended their life on the bridge? You know, if I had to take an estimate on how many people ended their life on the bridge, I would say well over a thousand. And I'm curious in your experience, male to female ratio, do you have a sense of that? Most of the time, it's white males, um, middle-aged or what I was seeing. Now, we have been seeing trends of younger folks coming up and, and jumping off of that bridge, but it's generally white males. So now you have moved and you're on the very cold Golden Gate Bridge. At what point do you realize or are informed that part of your job is talking people down from suicide? I had heard from other officers that, yes, there are suicidal folks that come to the bridge and are either going to jump right away or you talk to them. Most of the time they will come back. But I didn't realize to the extent that this would occur. So 
when I first started working down there, of course, there I get that call of a woman over the rail. There's a four foot pedestrian rail and then kind of an I-beam on the other side of that. And after that, nothing, 220 feet down. So this was my job to go and speak with this woman and I was not prepared. So I didn't really know what to say. I think I kind of went in with a law enforcement mode of her kind of trespassing over on the other side of that rail instead of being empathetic and everything that I would do nowadays. But I, I learned a lot in a very short time. But by looking in people's faces, you could see the tragedy that's been going on with them most of the time for, for quite a long time. Uh, and it was really the look in those people's eyes that made me want to stay down and work down there and learn how to negotiate much, much better. So that was my driving force. As you said, no training. So I think it's remarkable to go into this just using initially instincts. And as you said, you know, compassion and growing and succeeding in the way that you did. If you can explain physically both the bridge and the act of those who take the leap, what does that look like from the climbing to the rail, the distance to the water, so people can get a visual snapshot of what you're dealing with? The bridge is a little bit less than two miles long, and it has about a 10-foot sidewalk on both sides, the east and the west. And then there's a about a four-foot tall pedestrian rail. And on the other side of that, around most of the bridge, is what we call the cord, C-H-O-R-D. And it's like an I-beam on the other side, and that's where the, the workers stand and work from when they're painting and sandblasting the bridge. Um, but it, for me, it was a phenomenal place to work and met people from all over the world every single day. But it also has this dark side to it. And we'd get four to six cases a month where people would come up and want to jump off of that bridge to their death. So that jump, you know, it's 220 feet down. And from what I've learned, it's about um, 75 miles an hour what they'll travel. And when they hit, they'll break all sorts of bones and they sink quite a ways. And all you would see was this white foam come up and it would take several seconds before that dissipates. And then you would see that individual come up and sometimes they weren't um, deceased yet. They didn't pass. And then they're flailing around, but they broke so many bones and then they drown. And I tell folks this so they understand that this type of a death is not an easy way to go. People think, I'll just jump, I'll fly through the air, I'll land in the water, and I'll die. Well, that's part of it, but you're missing out quite a bit, too. It, it's, it's very brutal on the body. What happens in your soul when you watch that? For me, and I think for any other officer working up there who may witness something like this, it does not go away. That trauma is there forever. There are ways to help out with that through therapy, through eye movement desensitization and some different things, which I've tried. But um, in my opinion, not being a mental health professional, but kind of in the business a little bit, I would say that what you see there is going to be there forever. That's that trauma. And then also on top of that is if you were the one speaking to that individual, you think, oh, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better I feel like a little piece of me has died when that individual goes down. You know, deep, deep down, we know if they're coming up to that bridge, they have their mindset. This is what they want to do. But there's also that part of me that says, you know, what could we have done different? So it's it's very dark place deep within us that it's going to haunt you. It's going to be there. But we know, we know 
the vast, vast majority of folks who we speak to do come back over the rail. So when I'm speaking to other negotiators, I emphasize that we help a hell of a lot more folks than we lose. And it is up to us. And we are the ones that care. And we're the ones that need to continue on. But it does affect us. And the, the ones that I have lost and watched go down, they're there forever. They're in your head. What happens in your body when you get a suicide call versus another call, a car accident or something, when, when you know this is what I am moments away from doing? I start, first off, I say a little prayer. And as I'm driving down here, I'm thinking of the different occasions or circumstances I've had similar to this. And what can I use to my benefit as a so-called negotiator? Where is this person at? Is big on the bridge, too. If they're mid-span, it's going to be very, very cold as compared to if they're by one of the towers because the towers will block a lot of the wind. So we try to find out where they're at. Are they sitting on that court? Are they standing up? Are they? Do they keep looking at the water as their future? Or are they facing in towards us? So a lot of things come to play when I'm thinking about what is going on down there. And I think, you know, is this a male? Is it a female? Are they young? Are they old? Um, all the different things that I could say based on the scenario. What happens when you first arrive? How do you begin that conversation? What I do is I try to stay about 15 feet away or so, and I just raise up my right hand generally, and I ask them, and I introduce myself. Everything I do, I want to personalize, and I would tell them, hi, I'm Kevin. Is it okay if I come up and talk with you for a while? Because I think many folks have suffered a mental illness for a, quite a long time. To have somebody come up, especially somebody of authority, to come up and ask their permission to do something really sets this in a good tone. And, you know, when they allow me to, boom, they already have my first name. If they allow me to call them their first name, that's fantastic. I think really helps. I want them to feel they're in, they're in charge of a part of this also. I also read that some of the other questions you opened with were about their plans and if they had plans the next day and also an invitation to come back to the bridge if their plans did not work out. Talk to me about that and how that came to be, those opening lines of your first interactions with the people who were holding on for their lives. So typically, if someone was on the sidewalk and we felt we needed to question them, if they were so low and we had some indicators, or if they were in one of the parking lots, maybe talking on a voice recorder or writing a note, you know, we don't know what that is. Are they saying, hey, I'm having a fantastic time? Uh, are they writing a, a note to someone saying they're having a great time, a postcard from the Golden Gate Bridge, or is it a suicide note? So I would just, I'd want to find out. I would just approach them and talk with them for just a couple of minutes. Hi, I'm Kevin, just checking out, making sure everything's okay. Any help that I can give you, need directions anywhere? And, and just talk with them and build rapport for just a minute or two and then ask them, you know, something like, it's supposed to be great down here tomorrow, really, really nice weather. I have to work. What are you doing? And if they couldn't answer me, very, very quickly, then I know something's up because all of us know what we're doing in the next hour, you know, tomorrow, tonight. But then again, if someone is already over the rail, they're indicating, you know, absolutely that they are contemplating suicide. So I would have some some different questions that I would ask them. But one of them would be similar to, you know, can you tell me a, a time in the past when everything was going great, when everything was good? And let them expand on that and really think about times in the past. And then... I tell them, well, why don't you think you can go back to that? 
But so much of this is just listening to folks and not try to fill them with, you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. I don't do that. I don't think that's appropriate or right because we don't know if things are going to be all right or fine. But we do know that they can make it through that day and have at least another chance. do these conversations generally go on? And are there any common themes that you see? We've had them as small amount of time, short amount of time is 15 minutes. And the longest one I had was eight hours on that bridge. The common things that we see, most folks do suffer from a mental illness, whether that's depression or, or something else, um, whether diagnosed or not. If they were taking a medication, a prescription for mental illness. They stopped it a month or so prior. And a lot of folks did self-isolation prior to this. They just didn't want to be around anybody. And they felt like they were a burden to their families. But when I would ask them about it, you know, have you talked to your family about these feelings of being a burden? Um, No, they haven't. I guess, is there a consistent moment where people climb back over? You've seen that happen hundreds of times. Their mind has changed. Is there any common thread in that moment to walk away from jumping to their death? Um, Every single person is different, of course, but there'll be times when I'll say, you know what, I've given you a lot to think about. We've been talking here for some time. I'm going to take a step back and let you think about everything. And many times it's in that time when they can really sit back and not think about me talking to them or them talking to me where they could just have that inner thought quite a bit because then everything slows down a little more. And when people have stopped talking, a lot of times they want to tell you their story. If they can tell you their story and vent, that venting helps dramatically. This is a very, very tough time. If we can get you through today, most of the time, most folks will not attempt suicide again. And no matter what's going on, you do have this chance to survive here. And we'll talk about when folks do attempt suicide and lived, most of the time, whenever they did that particular act, the millisecond that they did that, reality set in and they thought to themselves, what have I done? Oh, my God, I want to live. I want to live. What happens next after somebody climbs over the railing and is back, I guess, in a a place of safety? Um, Personally, what I would do is congratulate them and ask them right there because I'm always wanted to learn. And I'm still doing that to this day. And I think that's so, so important to become better at your craft, whatever that is. So people would help me and say, hey, you, you kind of blew it when you did this. So I really liked it when you just listened and you didn't say anything at all. And then we would take them to one of the local hospitals for mental health evaluation. But I would also tell them, if you ever come back up here, I hope it's just to walk across or drive across. If you ever have those feelings again, I'm happy to meet with you. I would give them my office number. Uh, Fortunately, no one ever took me up on that. That's fascinating, though, that you spoke earlier about not having the training and that ultimately you had the best training in the world in those conversations and those follow up moments um, when it was so raw and real, which is, you know, why you are the renowned expert that you are today. So and my I I would certainly imagine why you had so much success in saving lives because because you began to be better and better and better at what you were positioned to do. 
You know, I think it's very, very important, especially as going into this type of an environment. You know, this is very unforgiving. And to get all the training that you can, even if it's directly with that individual you're speaking to after the fact, if they come back over to talk to them, hey, what can I do? I'm humble. I want to be better at this so I can help other people. Very cool. So my connotation of a soldier in the military and a prison guard would be somebody who's tough, a sense of toughness. To me, this sounds like there is softness, certainly a lot of empathy and compassion that you had. If that's true, where does that piece of you come from? I think that piece of me comes from a depression. I suffer from depression and I've taken medication and therapy for it, which has dramatically helped me. Great. You just spoke to this with depression, but I know you've experienced some other things in your life that I imagine uniquely positioned you to have these life-changing conversations with others. And you just mentioned your own depression. I believe you had a history of uh, mental health in your family, PTSD. You experienced a divorce. How did these things impact you as a person engaged in these life-saving conversations? Well, you're right. I've had some some difficulties along the way of my mother dying, um, myself being diagnosed with depression and actually feeling that and going through that process, suffering from that. Uh, I've had some head injuries, some traumatic brain injuries, as they say, concussions, which really knock you down. And um, I went through a divorce to where my wife, now ex-wife, wrote a suicide note to each of my boys and was looking up on the computer how to load a gun. So these things that really hit a, hit someone hard and they make you think, well, if I'm going through this and this is how I feel, there's folks that have been through maybe similar, maybe more, maybe less, but it is an extremely tough time. It's interesting, right? Because you've been there, right? And there would be people who had not, who couldn't relate in the way that you could. So I think that's certainly was one of the reasons that, that you were there for those conversations. You know, I, I totally agree with you. And the, the thing that I do is I don't talk about those things with folks. But if they happen to mention that, well, you don't know what it's like to go through a divorce and how brutal it is. Well, I did. And, and, and it was tough. It was very, very tough. And we say, you know, commonalities create comfort. You were quoted in the San Francisco Chronicle as saying, I very much despise losing I do whatever I can to get that person back over the rail. I play to win. Competitiveness. Explain this and where that piece of you comes from. This is about winning, but it's not winning for me. It's winning for them. My job is to get that individual back over because I think they're in crisis and they're not seeing everything as it should be. Of course, if they jump, there's, you know, we're done. Case closed. But I take it personally. I take responsibility, and I think, what can we do to help that person? I want to become friends up there as we talk through this. So it's just one individual speaking to another. Of course, you know, sometimes it gets deep and dark, and folks will tell you things that are very, very private. But it is all about them, and what can we do to help them in this very dark time in their lives? You've dissuaded more than 200 people from jumping off that bridge and ending their life. I was thinking about it because it's really so much more than that. It's 10x in my mind at a minimum because you've changed, if not saved the lives of their children, their parents, their loved ones. 
there have been two times when somebody jumped. How did you experience those two jumps and losses? Right. On two occasions, I did deal with individuals directly that did jump, but the two that I lost that I was directly speaking with were just brutal on me. Um, One man shook my hand three times, and he said on the third time, Kevin, thank you very much. I have to go. My grandmother's down there, and he jumped. And I just, I remember tearing up. You try to be this tough cop, but when you see somebody take their life, it's like you just lost a friend. And it is just brutal on you. I didn't sleep. You know, and and we try to think about, all right, those who we have helped in the past. But when it occurs to you, it's very, very difficult to watch that happen. And another gentleman we spoke to, I had another officer with me. And we spoke to him for about an hour. And then he was actually sitting on that cord. And he just leaned to his right and was gone. He was only 32 years old. Uh, It was just brutal to witness these things, this taking of your own life. But that face and what you see there is going to be with you the rest of your life. So you're the last person to have spoken to these individuals. What do you say to their families and what do the families want to know from you? Families, it, it varies, but many times they want to say, what were the last words? Did they have any possessions? What did you say? Most of the time that I've seen, or every time that I've seen it, is people were very thankful somebody was there as a comfort for them in those last few minutes. I'm going to talk about Kevin Berthia, who is a man whose life you saved. The circumstances that brought Kevin to the bridge, he's a new young father in his 20s. He has a brand new daughter who was born at two pounds and spent eight weeks in the NICU. He receives a bill for a quarter million dollars and is laid off and struggling with deep depression that he had been dealing with for years. And it was really interesting, two things he said. One is that he decided to make the drive from Oakland to jump from the Golden Gate. And he said he stopped and had to ask for directions. And he thought about that woman that he had asked who had had no idea why he was asking. And maybe if he told the truth, what she would have said. So I don't know why that stuck out to me, but it really did to to be that person being asked for something as simple as directions and not knowing what is about to happen. But the second person he encountered was you. And one of the things he said about you saving his life was actually that it was nothing that you said it was the power of your listening. What have you learned about the power of listening? I think Kevin Berthia hit it right on the nose. And that's what this is about. And what I teach now is the power of listening. I, I cannot stress that enough. How many times when someone is speaking to us, when they're speaking to us, we're already forming our answer or our question to them. They're talking about a good story and we want to one up them or tell them a similar story. Really listening to them, looking them right in the eye, right in the face, and just telling them, wow, really? Is that right? Little things that we can say that lets them know that we're listening. They appreciate that so much. I believe he was admitted after he stepped off that ledge, and there was actually a mistake made at the hospital, and he was admitted under your name, Kevin Briggs, which I, which I thought was interesting that, that they gave your name in his process of healing. 
I didn't find that out till much later. Also, I thought that that was pretty good. Okay, well, maybe it should have been me too. Maybe we should have went in together because <laughs> I did suffer from the bread. I've never been on a you know not a, a funny joke, but I've never been suicidal. But um, you know, there's many folks who suffer from a mental illness who haven't been suicidal. The reason I bring up Kevin, and for the listeners, I'm going to share a picture of you that's somewhat famous clinging on to Kevin over the bridge as you guys have this conversation, where he said he was sharing things he had never told anyone in his life. Today, he is a father of three and a suicide prevention advocate. Your story with Kevin is eight years after his attempt to end his life. You two met. What was that day like? We met in New York City uh, through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention at a big event they had there, our first time meeting after years. Um, shook his hand, gave him a hug. We chatted like we were old friends, like we had known each other forever. And he keeps saying, you know, when Kevin Briggs saved my life, well, I didn't save your life. I don't think I saved anybody. I think I was there for a very, very dark time and, and helped you through it is more of how I looked at it. I think they saved themselves. They had the courage to come back over because it takes a hell of a lot of courage to go over that rail. I think it takes even more courage to come back over that rail. But it was a wonderful evening. And uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. If you ever get a chance to hear him, he's wonderful. Yeah, he has a great TED Talk, which everybody should check out. Back to back with your great TED Talk. How has all of this changed you personally? And did it change the way you communicate or show up for people you love when they're in pain? Well, I've done this public speaking for almost six years now, um, been all over the world. And people say, oh, it's such a great TED Talk you did and you're phenomenal on stage and all this. Well, I don't look at that at all. I, I think, for one, I am not a public speaker. They say, put yourself in uncomfortable circumstances to grow well, I tell folks when I'm on that stage, I'm about 20 feet tall because it's very uncomfortable. But I think what's happening is those who have passed from suicide are really, really helping me out. But that's what I believe in. I believe in helping others. And if we could help folks way down at this bottom level, on a ground level, before they put a gun to their head, before they take pills, before they go to the top of the building or a bridge, that's what we need to do. There's no reason it should get to that level to where someone would want to go up on that bridge. We as a society need to develop these active listening skills to help one another to realize that there are those in pain. And if we can do this, we're going to save a lot of lives because we're losing over 47,000 a year just in this country alone to suicide. That is tragic. What do you want people to know about suicide? I want people to know about suicide, that there is help. Those who may be contemplating suicide and whether they're doing non-suicidal self-injury hurting themselves, you know, there's help for that. And then folks who don't understand it, that they think it's a selfless act or a selfish act. It is not a selfish act. These folks are in so much pain. The last thing they want to do is hurt someone else. And I've spoken to many, many people who are actively suicidal. Not one has said that they want to hurt other people. They just want their pain to end. So if we can get to those folks long before they get to that level where they're suicidal, uh, it's going to be much, much better. But I think the ones that don't know how to talk to someone or think, oh, they'll never hurt themselves, they'll never kill themselves. Well, boy, people get pushed by all the circumstances that they're in, that they feel that they don't have another way out. But I think just by taking some time to listen, tell me what's been going on. 
wow, you know, that sounds really tough and validating what they've been through. You don't have to say anything about you. It's about them. What is your greatest piece of wisdom from the 23 years you spent on that bridge saving lives? I would say my mantra is listen to understand, and that's what I believe. All right, we do a little thing called rapid fire. So I'm going to fire off a question or a statement for you to finish. Favorite movie? I'm a sci-fi guy, so I'll just say Legion. (laughs) Favorite meal? Favorite meal, meatloaf, mashed potatoes. Are you from the Midwest? Nope. Right here in California. (laughs) California boy with meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Attribute you are most proud of? The ability to understand what people are going through. Biggest vice? Biggest vice? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I work too much. Balance. I need balance. I am most grateful for? I am most grateful for my friends and family in my life. What I wish I knew when I was 20? I wish I knew more about helping others and more about how to live a a wonderful life while helping others. Best way to spend a Sunday? Would be with my boys and I would say just my family with my, my girlfriend, my boys and my dogs. Thank you, Kevin, otherwise known as Sergeant Briggs. And I hope this interview reaches some of the people um, that have been saved by you. It's really remarkable. Well, thank you very much. Today's interview with Kevin supports the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. With both national and local crisis centers, they provide free confidential support to people in a suicide crisis 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their mission? Improving crisis services, advancing suicide prevention by empowering individuals and professionals, and building awareness. To learn more about their important work, you can check them out at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. If you haven't already, I hope you'll consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. By subscribing, you will know every time we publish an episode with the goal of sharing inspiring stories with you, our listeners. Thank you and have an awesome day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.